think they're in the context that it comes in. I think there may be no more unsettling story in Scripture than the one that we find right after the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 4. You can turn there. That's where we're going to start this morning. We're going to jump around a bit. But it's the story of Cain and Abel. And this is the first story we have after Adam and Eve have been exiled from the Garden. So God has created this beautiful world, this lovely garden that he has planted, and he has placed Adam and Eve into it and given them everything that they need to enjoy one another and to enjoy and to know him. He's given them a mission to accomplish together, and everything is as it should be. And we, you know the story, you know what happens Everything's made to fit together in harmony, Adam and Eve sin, and we begin, as soon as they sin, we begin to immediately notice the disruptions that take place in relationships. I mean, right after they sin, they hide from God. They're embarrassed to be in one another's presence. And when God shows up and asks them about it, they start to blame each other and blame the serpent, and it's everyone else's fault. And so they're no longer immediately, as soon as they sin, they're no longer in a place of harmony and peace with one another or with God, and they obviously leave the garden and head out into the world in exile. And so the garden and the world is no longer a place that is as it should be. It's no longer a place of peace and of concord and of agreement and of harmony. But as Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, there is hope that is laid down for them. There's the expectation that they will have children, which is a wonderful gift from the Lord. And there's a promise that one of those children, some point down the line, will undo the work of the serpent and that things will be made right. And so while it is a very difficult situation and the harmony has been broken, there is is some hope as they're heading out into the world and they're together And they're expecting to have children. And so you open up to Genesis 4, and right away, God gifts them to boys. They have been blessed by the Lord, even in their state of sin, and they have two boys whose names are Cain and Abel. Now, I have one brother, and he's three and a half years younger than I am. He uh, lives in Southern California, works out there with his wife and three children, and Uh, We talk frequently over the phone. I love to see him. We have a great relationship. He was the best man in my wedding, one of my best friends. Um, Always love connecting with him. Now, I know not every sibling relationship is like that, and I'm blessed by the Lord to have that. But that being said, just having one brother being in the situation that Cain and Abel are in here as far as family size, it's hard to fathom how quickly this thing goes downhill here. And this is the first story right out of Genesis 3 and right out of the garden. Let's read this story starting in the middle of verse 2 down through verse 7. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain... And his offering he had no regard. And notice what it says here. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, 
Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So obviously here, Cain is upset about the whole thing. He didn't get what he wanted. And God here even warns him preemptively, right? Nothing has happened yet. God just warns him that there is this reality of sin that is at work in you. And God describes sin like an animal that is crouching at the door and is, has its teeth bared and is ready to spring into action and to devour him, to eat him up. It's ready to strike. And so Cain has this warning from God, and he ignores it. Look at verses 8 through 10. The consequences here are almost unimaginable. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and there's indication here that he is intentionally trying to get him out into the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now he's lying to cover his tracks. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So God creates this world to be a place where humans rule as his representatives in peace and harmony and everything fits together and they enjoy a personal relationship with God where he walks among them and dwells with them and they enjoy fruitful relationships and friendships with one another. But what has happened here is this wild animal of sin has gotten in and it has disrupted that peace and that concord to the point where the first story we read out of the garden is one brother rises up and is willing to murder his brother out of anger because he did not get what he wanted. Things did not go the way he wanted them to go. And so we know that the answer to this question ultimately on the screen, what disrupts peace, is sin. Sin has brought this great disruption and this tearing apart of relationships that should be in harmony. It has broken our peace with God, and sin has broken our peace with one another. But here's the thing about that very basic and simple answer to that question. What disrupts peace? Sin. If that's as far as we go down this road of trying to understand what has disrupted our peace, it's not ultimately going to help us that much. We see the big picture. We see that, yes, it is sin. We live in a broken world, and that has torn apart our relationships and our our peace with one another, but we need to go a little bit deeper than just that simple answer. And in Scripture, as we go through Scripture, this story, I think the implications of this and what breaks this peace apart and ultimately brings Cain to the point where he's willing to kill Abel will be made clear to us. What's behind all of this? We want to dive into this deeper this morning. So remember, let me show you the theme of what we're trying to get at in this series. We ought to pursue peace with one another because God values peace. We want to reflect him because he is a God who values peace with us and peace in our horizontal relationships as well. Now, in order to pursue peace, in order to make this something that we're going after and we are peacemakers, we need to know what causes conflict. 
What disrupts this? And that's what we're going to get at this morning. So one question, what disrupts peace? And I have two answers for you this morning. The first one of these is in James 4, which Dick read this morning. You can flip over there, but here's the first answer. Our passions, our desires, our want-tos drive us to fight. So flip over to James chapter 3 and 4, and that's where we're going to be. This is kind of our anchor passage for this morning, right? So we, we actually studied the whole book of James together in 2020. I'm sure 2020 is a blur for most of you, so you probably don't remember that, but we did. We studied the whole book together, and in that study, I tried to make the point that this text, James 3, 13 through 18, is the centerpiece, the climax of the whole book. This is the theme of the book that James is explaining to us. So the theme is wisdom. James wants us to grow in wisdom, and that wisdom will bring us to the point of wholeness or completeness, maturity in Christ. And he says here in this text that there are two types of wisdom. There is a wisdom that excludes God from the picture and is from the earth. It is demonic. And then there is a heavenly wisdom that comes down from God to us. And obviously, we want the heavenly wisdom. Look at how he describes earthly wisdom in verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Notice the characteristics of earthly wisdom. They're almost all about disruptions in relationships with one another. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder. All of those are describing breaks in relationships, things that cause a break in relationship between people. So that's earthly wisdom and its characteristics. Now look at the wisdom that comes from above, verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown. So you put the seed of peace in the ground, and a harvest of righteousness is what is sown. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. They're all about reconciliation and bringing broken relationships together. Now, in order to do that, in order to be people who make peace, who pursue peace in our daily lives, we really need to understand where the disruption and the broken relationships come from. This is very practical. James is an incredibly practical book. It's very helpful and very clear. And this text is so practical and functional for us. I mean, I'm sure at some point you have thought, why can't people just get along? Maybe you've thought, if everyone would just do what I want to do, we would all get along. Why can't people be reasonable? I'm sure no one has said that over the last two years. Why can't people just be reasonable? Why can't we just agree to disagree? Why is everyone so angry all the time? 
The answer to those questions is here in James 4. Right after James tells us the value of pursuing and making peace, here he's going to say, okay, now, this is what disrupts that. Look at James 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? All right, he set us up here. We're ready to go. That your passions, or you probably have a note in your margin that says pleasures or desires, your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have. So you act out of that desire, right? Here's why the conflict happens. Here's why Cain murdered Abel. He wanted something and he didn't get it. So you murder. You covet, you want, and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. So look, at the most basic level, here's what we're saying. When you have conflict, when you have a fight in any arena in your life, when you have a quarrel, when there's war, whether between two nations or between two people, it's because you want something and the other person wants something different. That is the bottom line. And notice here where the conflict originates. Where does it start? It starts inside, in your heart, and not in your circumstances. David Pallison, who has passed away now but is very helpful on a lot of these issues, counseling issues, interpersonal relationships, had this to say, and I love this. James does not say, he's talking about this passage, you are fighting because the other person is a blockhead. Because your hormones are raging. Because a demon of anger took up residence. Because humans have aggression, an aggression gene hardwired in by our evolutionary history. Because your father used to react in the same way. Because core needs are not being met. Because you woke up on the wrong side of the bed and had a bad day at work. Instead, James says, you fight because of your desires that battle within you. You want something but don't get it. So I would summarize this by saying the cause is not out there. It's not because he or she is doing this and acting in this way. They might be doing something wrong, but that's not ultimately why you're fighting in a sinful way and having conflict and quarreling. It's in here. It starts in here. Now, having Set that broad principle. Let's think a little more carefully about this to try to help us to use this in our daily lives. All right? James is not saying here that you can never disagree with another person. He's not saying that we, we always have to see everything the same way. He's not even saying that all disagreements are bad and are wrong. So peace, what we're talking about in this series, the idea of pursuing peace, peace does not mean complete and total uniformity in every area. It's not what the Bible is talking about. You don't have to think the same way. You don't have to act the same way. That is not the definition of peace. So to give you, a, I think, what is a very practical example of this, I think about our elder team here at WBC. As we try to shepherd 
There are five of us as we try to shepherd and try to lead WBC well and try to make decisions about ministries and about shepherding, budget issues, whatever it may be. As we try to do that and issues come up and concerns are voiced and we try to work through things, we're all coming at those issues and opinions and and decisions from a different background and from different angles. I mean, I'm sure some of you experience this at work. There are many times that we see things differently. We don't always come immediately to the same conclusion. Sometimes we just don't come to the same conclusion on things. And honestly, that's a gift. That is something that God has put within us because there's a diversity of gifting within the body. And so to have people that see things from a different angle is a gift that the Lord has given to us. But those differences, when those differences, because of our desires, lead us to fight, to get angry with one another, to quarrel, to be snide with one another, right? That is the point where you're crossing over from differences to conflict, and that's the point where conflict becomes sinful and starts to consume us. So, let me ask another very practical question as you're thinking about differences versus sinful conflict. How do I know if I'm experiencing something that is just a difference with a person versus something that is a now has crossed over into sinful conflict? Well, I will say this, even a difference of opinion is oftentimes driven by your desires and by your passions. Not all desires are sinful and not all desires are bad. So how do you tell the difference? Well, let me give you three diagnostic questions. If you're in a disagreement with someone, in a conflict with someone, ask these questions, be honest with yourself and try to work through these to help you see if something is out of whack in your heart, is amiss in your heart, all right? The first one of these questions is this. These all have to do with your desires. First, what desires are putting me in this position of conflict? You have got to identify what you're wanting. And I think this question, even just alone, is worth its weight in gold. And this is what James is getting at. The bottom line is your desires are driving you to a point of disagreement or conflict, so you have to identify what desires are going on in your heart. What are you actually wanting? So when you and your spouse have a disagreement about something, ask this question. What am I wanting in this circumstance? What do I want? Sometimes... If the conflict has been going on for a while or if it's a very sharp conflict and you can't figure out what you're wanting, it may be good to bring in another party, to bring in an elder or a close friend or a family member or whatever it may be. But ask them and say, look, we're having this conflict. I, I can't figure out why and I need help diagnosing and identifying what's going on in my heart. So help me with this. Secondly, after you've identified the desire, here's another question. Are my desires God-honoring or self-centered? Are these legitimate desires that I am having? Is there anything wrong with wanting what I'm wanting? Right? Once you have asked this question, now a third question. And maybe this is the most difficult, but it's 
So important. Have my legitimate desires, right? So if you identify them as self-centered desires, obviously you can stop the diagnosis there. Okay, yes, I'm wanting something that I shouldn't be wanting. Therefore, that's the cause of conflict. I repent of that, ask the Lord to change my desires, and reconcile with the person. But what if I'm wanting something that's legitimate? Okay, now, has my legitimate desire become a ruling desire? Has it become an idol? Am I worshiping whatever it may be, to the point where it's causing conflict with another person? Has this good desire replaced God and his rule and reign in my life? So now getting comfort is more important to me than God is. And maybe I would never say it that way, but it's working itself out that way because I am willing to fight to get comfort. I'll do whatever it takes to have a moment of ease in my day. And you better not get in my way because I'll, I'll tear you up if you do. I'll fight with you. I'll get angry with you so I can get what I want. Is it wrong to want comfort? No. It's a legitimate desire, but it can get out of proportion to the point where it's a ruling desire and it has replaced God. Again, Pallison says this, often it is not the object of a person's desire that is the problem. It is the encampment that corrupts, right? That desire gets in there, it sits on your heart, and it starts to, to pull the strings and starts to control the wheel of your heart and moves you in a direction that it wants you to, to the point where you're willing to fight over it. So, let me give you a, a personal example of this. I've already talked to Bethany about this, so it's okay that I share it. When we lived in Virginia, we had a, uh, a fenced-in backyard that had, I don't know, 20 oak trees, maybe more in it. Huge oak trees, massive, lots of leaves on those trees. And then the neighbors had trees right next to our fenced-in backyard, and their leaves would seem to find their way always into our backyard. And in the fall, every year, those trees would deposit an ungodly amount of leaves in our backyard. And because of the fence, we couldn't just wait for the wind to move them into the neighbor's yard. So at some point, we had to remove the leaves. Now, in our house, there were two different philosophies about how and when to remove the leaves. I was of the opinion that we should wait until every last leaf on every last oak tree had gently fallen to the ground. And so there were no... <laughs> there were no... <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> there, there were no more leaves on the trees. And at this point... The leaves would be piled up four and a half feet high. And all of that would happen before we even had to move a muscle and take a Saturday to go out there and clean them up. Bethany was of the opinion that we should be out there every other day trying to clean the leaves up, or maybe every week at least, so that the leaves would not destroy our grass and so that we would not lose a small child in them. One particular day, we were out there cleaning up leaves, and it had 
they'd been, my philosophy had been winning, apparently. There were so many of them. And our, our two opinions on this came head to head. And we started discussing it. And the discussion moved into a heated discussion. And then it turned into an all-out argument. And we were both actually mad at each other. And we could not see eye to eye on this. Were either of those opinions immoral? No. I mean, if you want to leave them all till the last leave comes off, that's maybe not the wisest thing to do, but that's not immoral to act that way. If you want to get out there every other day and clean them up so that the yard is nice, that is not immoral either. Both of those are okay ways to address the issue of the leaves in your yard. So why the anger? I mean, it sounds insane, right? Like, we got really mad at each other in the backyard fighting over this. Why the anger over leaves? The problem was obviously the leaves. <laughs> no, it wasn't the circumstances. It wasn't anything outside of us. It wasn't her. The problem was that our desires were not wrong, but they had grown out of proportion. They were ruling desires where I wanted to wait till the last possible minute and avoid cleaning up leaves because I wanted to use my Saturdays to do other things. Probably watch football. <laughs> she wanted us to get out there and clean them up because she wanted to have a nice looking yard, which is probably more legitimate than watching football, but either way, our desires had grown out of proportion to the point where we were waiting to fight, we were willing to fight over them. Find desires, but they'd become ruling desires. And so you can see how something perfectly legitimate can bring you to the point of conflict over something as mundane and stupid as leaves in a backyard. Now, here's, here's the thing, and, and I think the angle on which Scripture addresses conflict, right? As I'm talking this through, I think my natural assumption is when I'm involved in a conflict, I assume that I have the right desires and they are not out of proportion. So I always assume, well, it's a legit, perfectly legitimate to want to use my Saturday to do something else, and it's not a ruling desire. The problem is her. The problem is circumstances. It's always the other person who is the problem here. And we think that our desires are as pure as the driven snow, and they're never out of proportion. And before you assume that, I want to just show you some passages of Scripture that talk about how, how bad our desires are often and how they're rooted in, in our ungodly nature, our fleshly nature. And I want to remind you of just how much Scripture has to say about conflict and how the vast majority of the time it's because something has gone awry in our hearts and in our desires. 1 Corinthians 3. You don't have to turn there, it's on the screen. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Why? What is it about the Corinthians that, that makes Paul say you're still acting like unbelievers? For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you 
are not of the flesh and are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? I mean, Paul says, look, if there's conflict among you, something has gone wrong. It's a pretty good chance that your desires are out of proportion and that they're driven by the flesh. You want what you want and you can't obtain it and so you fight over it. And we fight because we're operating out of the old man, right? That's what the flesh is. It's not your physical body here. It's your flesh. It's your old man, the former way of life. Now, it's amazing, I think, that Paul writes this because in several places in Paul's epistles, we looked at one last week, he talks about how there are legitimate differences among believers. Romans 14. He even talks in 1 Corinthians 12, I think it is, about the body and how there's different parts to the body, and they're all distinct, and they all have different gifting. And so there are differences, but those differences do not have to lead us to the point of conflict and of strife. And at that point, when you're, when you're there, and you're seeing a difference, and it's, it's starting, you can feel the desires, and it's headed toward conflict and toward strife, you've got to step in. And that's the point when we need peacemakers. Proverbs 17, 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. And you've experienced this, I know, right? So quit before the quarrel breaks out. Use those diagnostic questions. Examine your heart. Pray to the Lord. Once it gets going, it's hard to walk it back. It's hard to stop because now you're entrenched now you're going after what you want. You fought for it, and you're going to continue to fight for it till you get it. Stop and pursue peace while you can. And the Bible also has this to say for those who are perpetually in conflict, who always think they're handling things correctly and their desires are right, and they're doing the right thing in the right proportion. The Bible has something to say to them as well. Proverbs 20 and verse 3. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. There are times where it is legitimate to not be at peace with someone, but the typical way this goes down is that fools pursue quarreling and they fight out of their fleshly desires. Now, listen, I'm going to make a little application of this here to something that is very common in our world. We've talked a lot about interpersonal relationships within the church. We talked about, even last week, about how the world around us shapes us and can form us into be, to being people who fight and want to fight about things regularly. But there are people today who claim to be Christians who make it a point to go online, maybe you've bumped into these people, and constantly quarrel with everyone else who claims to be a Christian. They're all about it. They want to find out what's wrong in somebody else, and they want to go after it. They call themselves, or they say that they have a discernment ministry. Even though discernment in Scripture is always aimed at what is good, they say they have a discernment ministry. They don't understand what the Bible teaches about discernment. The Bible would say you don't have a discernment ministry, you have a foolish ministry, if you're constantly quarreling with everyone. So my encouragement to you would be don't listen to those type of people. 
Don't follow them. Don't listen to them. Don't give in to their foolishness. Instead, do the hard and good work of imitating the Lord and pursue peace. Don't be shaped to be people who always want to fight and always find themselves in a fight. So, this is our first uh, answer to that question of what disrupts peace. It is our passions, it's our desires. It comes from inside of us and drives us to fight. And so we have to grow in our ability to diagnose our desires and to bring them before the Lord and repent of them and pursue peace. The second answer to that question is our pride leads us to replace God. Our pride leads us to replace God. So if you're in James 4, Dick read this again this morning, or read this earlier this morning, and in this passage, James addresses the, re- the root cause of, of disruption and of conflict in verses 1 and 2, and then he goes on to talk about how our desires reflect our friendship with the world. Right? When we are constantly in conflict and when we're wanting what we want to the point of conflict, we are friends of the world rather than God. And so he says, to be a friend of God requires humility. It requires that you step back and you submit to God and you don't think that you're always right and you bring your desires to him. Look at verse 10. Humble yourselves kind of the culmination of his discussion of humility, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Then in verses 11 and 12, he now addresses this second answer to our question, what disrupts peace? Look at these verses. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil or speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So the action here in verse 11 is to speak evil against another person. Why do we do that, right? I mean, that's a good uh, summary of conflict. We start to talk in an evil way about another person. Why do we do this? Because we have exalted ourselves. We have put ourselves on a pedestal to the point where we replace God as the judge. We take his role. Look at verse 12. There is only one lawgiver, and you and I are not him. We're not the lawgiver. But what happens is our pride lifts us up and causes conflict to the point where we put ourselves at the center. And we reduce others to objects of judgment. And this self-centered pride that would exalt self to this level is at the heart of all sin, right? I mean, this is really the core of all sin. It's we want God's position. And so we exalt self. We think about self. We want what we want because it's all about me. And you can see how a person operating out of that sort of pride has lots of conflict. And you can see how when maybe you have conflict, you can walk it back and say, man, I'm, I'm really being arrogant and prideful and wanting what I want just because I think I'm the most important person in this moment. Now, I want to show you another place where Paul explains this sort of self-worship and how it leads 
to lots of division and conflict. Flip over to Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. He addresses self-worship here. We're going to start in verse 28, but then we're going to go backwards and then read forward. So he addresses self-worship in Romans 1, and he, then he talks about the attitudes and the actions that come from this sort of prideful self-worship. Look at verse 28. For this, or, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. All right. So what is he talking about there when he says they don't see fit to acknowledge God? Well, back up. That's sort of a summary of what he has said before. So back up to verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, right? They're confident in themselves and their wisdom and their view of reality. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so the failure to acknowledge God comes from pride, from self centeredness from self-worship, and it involves exchanging God's glory, who deserves our honor and praise, for self or some other object. So what does God do in response to this? Look at verse 24. Therefore, notice this language, God gave them up in the desires of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God, the acknowledgement of God and who he is, for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. He gives them up to their self-centered desires. Look at verse 26 again. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions or desires. And so again, he gives them up to follow their self-centeredness. And in verse 28, we have this summary. What's the problem with human beings in our sin? And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God as God, here's what it says God does. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So when God gives them up three times in this passage, what do people do? Well, there's a number of different sins. Homosexuality is talked about here. But specifically, look at this list of sins in verses 29 to 31. This is the result of worshiping self instead of worshiping God. Verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. How many of those sinful 
character qualities and actions have to do with strife in relationships. It's a primary manifestation of our exchanging the truth about God for an emphasis on self. We fight because I'm the center of the universe and I want what I want and I will tear you up if you get in my way. God's no longer on the throne. I am. And it results in conflict all the time. So here's why we have conflict. Let me summarize this. My self-centered pride causes me to fail to acknowledge God's authority, to fail to see him for who he is, to fail to acknowledge his glory and his splendor, and that I should humbly submit to him to put him on the throne. And instead, I replace his glory with my own fleshly desires. And I want what I want. And You better not get in my way because I'll get what I want. Again, David Pallison has this to say about this problem. As sinners, we naturally contend for our presumed self-interest. We also learn how to fight more effectively by extensive and intensive practice. As we learn from others, both by experiencing their hostilities and by watching how they fight, each of us is a quick study because we have the aptitude. So, so here's what happens. It's a double whammy for us, right? We have a natural propensity to fight because of our fallen, sinful nature. Because we're self-centered. They come naturally to us to think about self. And that self-centered nature is encouraged and fostered and grown as we watch other people fight and learn how to do it. We become experts at disguising our real passions and desires and instead, fighting with people. We watch how other people fight, and we learn from it. We want what we want, we fight to get it, and we protect our desires at all costs. Now, that's a bleak picture, right? And I hope that that has, this morning, exposed something in your heart, as it has in mine this week, about why there's conflict and why we're often caught up in conflict, and how we handle conflict. But I want to take a turn here at the end, before next week we get into the attitudes of a peacemaker and then the actions of a peacemaker. I want to, I want to take a turn at the end here and show you that even though our nature has been corrupted and we learn how to fight by watching others, in Christ we have a new nature and now we learn how to pursue peace humbly with others from the Lord Jesus Christ. The correction is there for our nature and our experience in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, I'll read it to you. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's hard. 
I can't do that naturally, and I have not learned how to do that very well. But Paul continues, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, right? You have this mindset now. It is objectively yours because you are united with the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is his mindset, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He has changed our nature by his death on the cross, and he has given us the example of servant-minded humility that pursues peace with one another, that is focused on the other person, and pursues reconciliation with that person. What a glorious picture. What a glorious example he has set for us. And so next week, I want to get into the attitudes that are necessary that we must cultivate to become peacemakers, to mimic the Lord in what he has done for us. These are modeled by him. And they're necessary for us to stop the cycle of desires that lead us to strife and to actually go about being peacemakers in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have. Lord Jesus, you humbled yourself to such an amazing level so that we could have a new nature and so that we could watch you and learn from your example for us and we could imitate you. And so I pray that we would do the work this week of diagnosing our hearts and seeing where our desires have gone astray and that we would repent of those and turn to you and learn of what it means to be a peacemaker from you, Lord Jesus, to be a reconciler, to be gentle and humble and full of grace and mercy. And so we're so thankful for what you have done for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.